Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Traditionalist, I love wrestling. Period, as you know, 181 episodes. But I love classic traditional wrestling, and who better to talk classic wrestling than Jumping Jim Brunzel? How are you tonight, sir? Chris, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much uh, for uh, having. Be, being a part of the show tonight, I'm looking forward to uh, speaking with you. So, are you uh, a college football fan at all? Of course, I played college okay. football. <laughs> okay, right. I, so, I, I played in Minnesota back in '68 uh, and '69 and '70. I'm an old timer, but I nice. love college so, football. You know, it's so it's, Big Ten. Uh, yeah, Big Ten is cool now that uh, Urban Meyer is really. Uh, uh, you know, lifted uh, Ohio State to the point where shit, uh, they they probably won't get beat for the next couple of years. 
Yeah, yeah, it'll be, it'll be. I'm a huge Ohio State fan, and I'm, a, I'm from, I'm, a, I'm an Ohioan, so I, I love Ohio State. And uh, yeah, Jerry Kill, uh, your boy Jerry Kill from from Minnesota. I, I, I certainly have to say that, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of the Big Ten. Of course, not a Michigan fan by any stretch, but a uh, big Big Ten advocate. But uh, Minnesota, Jerry Kill's definitely. Uh, doing a, a really good job with Minnesota, and just I, I can definitely see the the growth and the maturity of the Golden Gophers, and uh, just a, a heartbreaker against BYU game one, but last weekend you uh, you, you guys definitely uh, made up for it, and you I think I think Minnesota is going to be a threat in the Big Ten. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, I, you know, Jerry, I know Jerry Kill very well, and uh, he's a heck of a guy. He's an old, traditional-type coach, uh, you know, believes in the basics, ball control, field position, the kicking game. And uh, he's really added a lot of depth in terms of talent to the Gopher team, which has really made it a better team all the way around. And, uh, you know, I, the only the only part that uh, is – sort of uh, up in the air right now as the quarterback. Uh, uh, Mitch Wagner's a big kid. He's, uh, he's uh, a red, uh, redshirt junior, I believe, and he's six four and a half and 247 pounds. And, yeah. uh, you know, they run that quarterback spread and uh, quarterback option. And I, personally, I like to have a quarterback drop back and either hand the ball off or throw in a pro set. But uh, Jerry, Jerry's a stubborn guy, and, and he's going yeah. to go with uh, Mitch until, you know, proven otherwise. But I'd like to see, a, a, you know, a couple other, uh, and, you know, them explore the depth chart a little bit and go with the second and third team quarterback and just see what sort of passing, uh, you know, they can do because the passing game is so important now in football. Uh, and, you know, Ohio State is really – Really, you know, I mean, they got three quarterbacks that could start in any doggone, uh, you know, college in the country. And uh, yeah. Yeah, the emphasis, you got to move the ball and you got to be able to pass it, period. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about the dual quarterback uh, system that uh, Urban's got going on right now with uh, my boys oh, uh, Cardell and JT? Well, he, he, they've got so much talent there, and they've got so much speed. Uh, I think, you know, I, in the last five years, if you look at the um, the difference between the SEC and the Big Ten, uh, the biggest difference is speed, overall team speed. And uh, what Urban has done at Ohio State is he increased the team speed which <laughs> makes Ohio State, you know, pretty formidable in terms, yeah. like I said earlier, I don't think they're going to get beat this year. I don't know if anybody can beat them. They they just have so much depth and so much talent, um, you know, at that quarterback position. Uh, it, it's, it's just pretty hard to deal with. Yeah, yeah, I t- I totally agree. I it's it's you know Michigan State's always a threat. You know they're, they're going sure. to do very well, and uh, you know that that's our biggest threat. Of course, you know we we can't uh, we we can't take advantage or we can't overlook any team in the Big Ten. Uh, Ohio State knows that very well. A few years ago when we lost to Purdue, 
So, okay. you know, it was uh it was that was uh really tough to to really uh digest when we did that, but we can't look over anybody, but I think that we're just so elusive and we so we're so versatile that, you know, we have such a confusing offense for coaches to I mean, you can watch hours and hours of tapes, but just that live effect and dealing with, you know, that that such a confusing you know, type of offense that we deal with when, you know, they call Cardell 12 gates for a reason because he has a cannon. And then, of course, J- JT is as quick as ever, you know, and, and so elusive. And, uh, you know, he can he can make yards out of nothing. And I, I, I'm so – I'm a diehard – I'm a diehard Buckeye fan. You know, I know I'm a, a Iowan and, you know, always will be, you know, God willing, and, and you know, I'm just so happy that Ohio State is, is the talk of the town and the talk of the nation, uh, number one team in the nation, defending national championships, first ever, you know, we made history, first ever, you know, playoff winner, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to more. I think I think we might do it again. You know, Kirk, Kirk Herbstreet, uh, you know, he's a, a fellow Buckeye. He tries sure. his best to be impartial, but uh, you know he he's got those. You know, if if you if you bleed star, scarlet and gray, it's it's tough to, to to be impartial. He's got Ohio State winning again, so I, I don't think I disagree with him there. Well, they and, and you know basically, I mean, it all starts in the offensive line, and and they've got a great offensive line, and yep. uh, you know that's where it starts. And if you've got a good offensive line. And you can open the holes, and the backs can get through it, and you give protection to the quarterback. I mean, uh, you know that's basis of power football, and and uh, you know Ohio State is a step up ahead of everybody. I remember, and and this goes back a long time ago in '68 and '69. Uh, they had Rex Kern, and they had Jim Otis, and they had uh, the safety guy. God dang, he was a tough son of a gun to the plate in the NFL for a long time, uh, Tatum, Jack Tatum. And I think my junior or senior year, they had 10 or 11 guys on the Ohio State team that were either, and they were in the first first five rounds of the NFL draft. They had unbelievable talent that year. And they beat us 28-14, to and... um, uh, Rex Kern, uh, you know, they had, uh, I'm trying to think of it, Leo Hayden and John Brockington were two, the two running backs. And uh, they just had a hell of a team. And it, it, it was it was fun to play them. But, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> when you get beat like that, man, we got beat a couple years in a row by them. Uh, yeah. You know, they just had some of the top talent in the country. So, And, and you know, Ohio State's done well. You know, uh, Woody Hayes and my old coach, uh, Murray Warmath and Bo Schemblecker, and they had a whole mess of guys who were, you know, Bear Bryant, Frank Cush from Arizona State. All those guys were a chip off the block, you know, and, and they all believed in field position and, you know, ball control and the kicking game and, you know, sort of damn boring, but uh, uh, time progressed, and I, I love the way they pass the ball now. I, I, I love college football when they throw the ball. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and Urban's definitely got that uh, 
you know, that difference and more more, more liberal type of uh, offense, which I love, which is really a step away from, you know, just about everyone. I mean, you know, we had 10 years of, uh, of Jim Trestle and, you know, sure. Trestle and Arbin are night and day, you know, from, oh, from yeah. the play-calling perspective and just, you know, I remember I think I, I believe it was uh, Jim Trestle – that said the most important play is to, uh, of the game is to punt. And I said, what in the world is that? You know, and I understand I understand what he means as far as ball control and just, you know, positioning and things like that. But that's not my type. As a fan and, and as a, a former football player myself, you know, that's just not what I'm thinking of, you know, when I'm thinking of, you know, the field. I'm thinking of how much – how many points are we going to run up and how much are we going to how, how much how, how many how much are we going to limit the other team with yardage you know from our secondary from our linemen you know we're going to limit the team in yardage and we're just going to run up the score as much because we want to we want to make that statement we want to you know we want to dominate and we want to have the mental game with our future opponents you know i mean we want to we want to get we want to intimidate them from a mental standpoint so they would you know they come in the game having that psychological you know factor as well and not just play conservative ball so much that's not very intimidating you know we we did the job yeah. and we got a national championship with 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 trussell but i mean the play calling was so daggone conservative you know sure. that I, I just it, it was just tough to watch. You know sometimes. Well, you know that's I, you and, know, and, and that's that like bow and that's that that's that that's that uh, um, uh, Woody ball. You know it was three yards yeah, exactly. of powder dust. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I feel the same way. I, I I and Jerry Kill at Minnesota has a very conservative uh, game plan. You know game after game and. You know when they do need to open it up in the you know uh, in the second half and the third and fourth quarter they do and they move the ball. So you know I I I all in favor for throwing the ball thirty times you know or thirty five times whatever you need to do uh, to move the ball down the field and um, and I think Urban Meyer has brought you know he's he's without a doubt you know one of the top three coaches in college football. Mm-hmm. And uh, his salary shows that, and um, yeah. you know he's been a huge success wherever he's been, and uh, he it was just a great uh, feat for Ohio State to land him. And oh, yeah. as soon as as soon as they got him, I thought, oh Christ, here we go. You know they're yeah. going to get all that speed <laughs> from Florida and Texas, and you know wherever they can, and uh, mostly probably Florida, but. And then you got some great ball players in Ohio and Pennsylvania too, so you know uh, he's uh, Ohio State's going to be the you know cream of the crop until uh, you know somebody can beat them. I agree. So you pay, so you played you played ball in the late '60s, and so yep. after after football, uh, where'd you go then? Would you did you did you finish uh, school in Minnesota? I finished school. Actually, I had a, a free agent tryout uh, with the Washington Redskins in mm-hmm. uh, 1971, and I went down to this camp at George Washington University. And it was a three-day deal, and, and basically all it was was uh, you know, speed test, agility test, see how you catch the ball, 
uh, if you punted or kicked or whatever. And uh, then they they called out, you know, guys that they bring back. And I think they only brought back one or two guys. And one guy they brought back, this was in George Allen. The next year they won the damn Super Bowl. They had a, a kid named Herb Mulkey who was a punt returner. And I don't know where the heck he I don't know if he played in if he played at Arizona or something, but he can run like a son of a gun. He was the fastest guy there by far. And um, he was the only guy they kept. And so I went back to school, and then Greg Gagne, who was a teammate of mine at the university, he was a walk-on quarterback my freshman year when I was a walk-on wide receiver. So we became friends, and, you know, uh, Greg's dad was Vern Gagne, just incredible, you know, wrestling uh, <laughs> superstar in, in college and, and in uh, uh, pro wrestling. And when I went back to school, uh, Greg called me and he said, geez, my dad's going to have a camp. And he's got Ken Patera. He's got uh, Rick Flair. He's got Bob Brothers. He's got Cosro Vaziri. And it'll be you and me. So I thought, wow, well, Christ, you know, I... <laughs> I can't. I, it doesn't look like I'm going to play football, so I, I tried this. And uh, and Billy Robinson, the British Empire champion, was actually our trainer. And at that time in the AWA, which you know is uh, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, Winnipeg, Denver, uh, some parts of uh, Illinois, uh, it was a big territory. Um, it, it was sort of a uh, the cream of the crop in terms of pro wrestling, and and what made it so good is there was so damn much talent there. I mean, uh, when I started, I mean, uh, <laughs> you can talk about New York and you can talk about different areas, but uh, they had about fourteen to fifteen guys in the AWA, and you know, I'm talking the Crusher, Wahoo McDaniel's, Nick Bachwinkle, Bobby Heenan, uh, Billy Superstar Graham. Uh, Ray Stevens, uh, uh, Pat Patterson, uh, Baron Von Raschke, Dick the Bruiser, uh, Mad Dog Deshaun, Larry Henning. I mean, they had some tremendous talent there. And and when uh, Greg and I started off in you know in the late '72 and early '73, um, you know, <laughs> you couldn't help but get better. So mm-hmm. you know, I started then, and then uh, Vern sent me down to Kansas City. Uh, for a year, and actually, uh, I, I wrestled for Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor, and then there was an old-time Greek promoter in St. Joe by the name of Gust Karras, and uh, he uh, wanted uh, Geigel and O'Connor to put me and this Mike George, who was a local uh, wrestler from St. Joe together, so uh, that was my first tag team, and and we did very well and, and won the Central States Day Team Championship, I think it was in 73 or uh, yeah, 74. And then I was down there for a year, and then uh, Vern wanted me back, and then they, they you know, put Greg and I together in 70, late 74, early 75 as the high flyers. And like I said, when, you know, you have all that great talent here, uh, and the greatest thing about the AWA was you didn't have to wrestle 30 days a month like you know, mm-hmm. what happened in uh, 
WWF or WWE now when I went there in, you know, 85. But uh, uh, Vern had a nice area. You know, we sold to a lot of towns. They had great talent. But the best thing about it was you made good money, but you had time off. You only worked 14 times a month. Mm-hmm. So it was good. Wow, that's that, that's awesome. So a lot of people talk about the the, the training in AWA as far as uh, Vern and uh, I've definitely seen some tapes as far as the the running and and all of the uh, really intense uh training that uh, from from what I saw, it wasn't a lot of holds. It was a lot of, you know, plyometrics and a lot of cardiovascular endurance training and things like that. Sure. So yeah. it, it wasn't a lot of it wasn't a lot of holds from what I saw. Was was that what you experienced? Well, I think I think what Vern wanted to do is he wanted to test everybody's metal and wanted to see, you know, how far they were willing to go, you know, to mm-hmm. do this. So, you know, we used to do, you know, we'd run a couple miles to begin with, and then uh, we did these free squats, these Hindu free squats, and we started with sets of, you know, 25 and 50 and 100. And at the end, we were doing a, a 10 sets of 100 a day. So we were doing wow. a 1,000 free squats before we'd even start. And, geez, my legs just bloomed. My legs got bigger then than they, you know, ever, you know, ever did with, you know, uh, doing squats, you know, for football. But Vern, you know, wanted to test everybody. And then, you know, he had Billy Robinson that would take us, and we were in this old barn, you know, and it had no heat and crap. There was pigeon crap all over the place. And and he'd have us in the ring, and he, you know, and he was he was damn good. Billy was uh, more or less uh, a submission type guy, and. He, he he would you know show us all these submission holds and and uh, you know we didn't know what the hell was going. On. They never smartened us up. They never told us about the business or anything. So uh, you know we you know from day to day and we we trained six days a week and it was about a four to six hour day. And then uh, you know I thought, holy God, how many you know. And then I remember the first match I had. It was. Uh, in a small town called Moorhead, Minnesota. It was at the Armory, and I was wrestling uh, another amateur who Vern had trained a couple years earlier. His name was Dennis Stamp. And uh, he and I did a 15-minute draw in the first match. And honest to God, Chris, I was so out of breath and so disgusted, you know. And I, I remember coming into the locker room, and I, you know, I was, uh, I've always been a real competitor, and I always, you know, take pride in what I did, and, and uh, you know, being just a young kid, and I came in, and I, I kicked this dog on uh, rubber, whatever the hell it was, a waste paper basket, and Dusty Rhodes was there, and he started to laugh, and he said, Jimmy, 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 he says, you know, this is your first match, you know, he said, you know, don't worry about it, so I I sort of felt foolish after that, and, and then um, uh, I realized that you know every time I went in the ring, you know it was a learning experience, just like any other job. You have a mm-hmm. you know a learning curve. So uh, in pro wrestling, it's about mm, I would say one to three years, and then you know there was guys you know like Ric Flair and Bobby Orton Jr. and some other guys that were just, you know, it was like dropping a, a fish in water. 
you know, they just took right off. And, uh, yeah. But for the majority of us, I think it was, you know, one to two, you know, maybe even a three-year learning curve. And, and uh, you tried to uh, incorporate what you saw. You know, I, when I was down in Kansas City, uh, uh, I saw Harley Race, Jack Briscoe, and Dory Funk, and Terry Funk, and, and all those guys, and I watched what they did in the ring, and I saw a lot of stuff they did, and and it was uh, a great opportunity for me, you know, to just see how other guys worked in the ring. So uh, I take a little bit here and take a little bit there, and and you know try to put it into my you know repertoire and what I did. But uh, you know, uh, more you traveled, uh, and I had a couple opportunities. I was down in Charlotte, North Carolina for about uh, 16 months in uh, the late 70s and had an opportunity to work with Flair down there and uh, Jimmy Snuka and uh, Buddy Rogers and Ricky Steamboat and uh, Cosgrove Vaziri and Greg Tyne. And, and it, you know, the, the only problem with uh, North Carolina was uh, George Scott was a booker and God dang, he booked, you know, I think in 18 months I had three days off. Wow. So, yeah, we never had any time off. So even though the, the towns were drivable, you know, they were 150 to 250 miles, so you got home every night. But, you know, I, I will say that, that when I came back to Minnesota in 1980, I was in the best shape of my uh, career. I, I, I remember one week I did three one-hour broadways, which is 60-minute time limit. I did one with Harley and two with Rick Flair, all in one week. <laughs> so, wow. you know, you uh, you really got in good shape down there. Yeah, yeah. So, how was it working with Dusty? Was he, you know, uh, he was he like a, a, a hard nose in the back? Was was he really a nice guy? Was he was he you know all about himself? Was he really helpful to you? How, how was it? How, how was it really working with Dusty? Because I've, you know, Flair say one thing, you know, they they have their ups and downs, but you know, sure. a lot of other people, you know, would say that, uh, you know, uh, Dusty was <laughs> all about himself, and then other people would say, you know, that he was a, a really helpful hand. So, how was it for you working with Dusty? Well, see, I was no threat to Dusty because you know he was sort of a a gimmick babyface, and he started out being a gimmick heel, and then they turned him as a babyface, and he got over mm-hmm. like son of a gun. And Dusty was uh, unique in that uh, there was nobody else that did interviews like him. And that's what got him over, and he, you know, the people loved him, and uh, I'm sure the reason why there might be some flack between him and Rick over the years is actually... Rick sort of idolized him when he first started, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you know he 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 copied a lot of mannerisms uh, of Dusty, and then he you know he he watched his delivery in terms of his interview, and that's what made Dusty you know so unique in the business that he was you know one of a kind in, in terms of the style that he uh, projected. You know, when he gave an interview, he was great, and he was funny, and, he, you know, <laughs> the people loved him. And, yeah. 
I never, I, you know, I, I got along with Dusty and, and, and Dickie Murdoch, his partner, who was just unbelievably talented, uh, uh, was uh, just a, a joy to work with. I mean, he, he was really good. Um, I think that Dickie was sort of his own worst enemy because um, I, I think that maybe he he really didn't know how to deal with some people because uh, I you know he I I don't want to say he was undereducated but I don't think education was one of his early skills so when he got into wrestling you know I I don't know how he uh, thought he was going to deal with people but he was he was pretty coarse but he was an enormous talent in the ring. Uh, there were yeah, very yeah. few guys in that era that were good, you know, as good as Dick Murdoch. I mean, he could he he saw something and he could do it. You know, him and the Fonts uh, had that you know Southwest Texas style, and 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 they were pretty they were pretty damn good. Yeah, Murdoch seemed like a, a legitimate tough guy. He just really seemed, uh, you know, like the, you know, of course within wrestling, you, you know, you you're in your gimmick and you, know, you play kayfabe and, you know, but there's some guys that just really seem like they're legitimate tough guys, you know, and uh, yeah, and Dick Murdoch seemed like he was one of those guys. Do you remember any specific stories in the back where he kind of lived that out? Well, you know, I I, I could relate something, but it it would be sort of something sort of biased. Uh, You know, Dickie was raised in the South, and and he had sort of a a racist attitude. And I remember him showing me a card that he was a Ku Klux Klan member. And uh, (laughs) I I said, Dickie, I don't show that to too many people around here. But, uh, you know, he was that type of guy he was, and that was his upbringing. And like I said, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know how far he went through school. You know, uh, I don't know if he went to college. Some people say he went to college and played, you know, a couple years football. I don't know that for sure. But I just know that he was an enormous talent in the ring. I mean, he could do anything in the ring, and he could work with anybody. And and, uh, he... You know, I mean, when they, they, him and Dusty were called the uh, uh, tornado, Texas, Texas tornadoes, and and he was just incredible. He was one of the best, you know, yeah. at that time. And I remember him and Billy Robinson just having fantastic matches. I mean, just mm-hmm. incredible matches that, you know, uh, people don't see matches like that now, and they haven't seen matches like that for thirty years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, just I mean that that's that's hardcore right there. I mean, you know, you yeah. want to talk about you know chair swinging and you know oh, uh, Bob Wire, but ring. you know the yeah. timing in the ring. I I mean now when you watch uh, WWE and, and I'll say you know the WWE is uh, events is you know over the course of thirty years has reeducated you know the wrestling fan to adopt what he is projecting as wrestling. And, you know, uh, one thing I, I, I think is very good about what I see now is these guys are making great money. You know, when uh, when I wrestled and I, I had a career, you know, of 25 years, um, 
you know, you never really knew exactly how much money you were going to make a year. Now mm-hmm. they have, you know, guaranteed contracts you're going to make. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, Randy Orton Jr. is making $245,000 a month. You know, and that's yeah. pretty good bread. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> I remember, you know, we'd sign a contract and then you'd shake a hand and they, and and uh, you had no idea. You know, you might make 4000 or $5,000 a week and then all of a sudden the houses would go up like hell and there was, you know, just the gate receipts were great and then you'd look at your pay and you're, you're down to 3200 a week. You know, and that was good money, but, you know, people don't realize that in wrestling, you have nothing. I mean, there is no benefits. There is no. Uh, we were independent contractors, and, and you had to pay your own taxes. You had to pay your own uh, road, you know, trips. The only thing that WWE paid for was your airfare, but you had to pay for your rent a car, you know, your motel room, and your food, and you know, whatever else, you know, your booze or your drugs or whatever else you wanted to buy, you know, to get mm-hmm. you through the week. But um, so now these guys are making great money. I mean, you know, you got guys like John Cena and, and uh, Brock Lesnar and shit. They're making three, you know, four or five million a year. Now, do you think that the guaranteed contracts and, and the pay that uh, the superstars are getting just across the board? I mean, a lot of the, you know, when it comes with TV. You know, a lot, even outside of the WWE, people are, are making contracts. Of course, you know, people like TNA, they still have, you know, like paper appearance. But, you know, you still have a handful of people that are, you know, having guaranteed contracts. Do you think that that kind of dilutes the passion that the wrestlers are having these days compared to the 80s and the 70s? Uh, because uh, you know I, I've I've followed wrestling all my life, and even before that, watching hours and hours of tapes, and I can see the grit, and I can see the passion that it came, you know, with just wrestling and, and being so used to wrestling seven days a week, you know, what I mean, and just having fifty bucks to show for it at the end of the week, you know, just the sure. but still having the grit and the passion to keep going for the next week, knowing that you're going to make fifty dollars. You know, but still having that 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 type of uh, earnest desire to keep making it in the pro wrestling business. You know, it wasn't necessarily about money. Of course, you want to make money, you want to make a living because you had to you know pay and and had to make a living. But nowadays, you have these guaranteed contracts. You have a lot of wrestlers who are still asking for more, and still that's still not satisfactory. These these big money contracts. Do you think that the mental game and the desire and the passion for a lot of these wrestlers now compared to the 80s, do you think that there's a difference because of these contracts? Oh, definitely. Um, and this is this is just my own opinion. You know, it might be right, it might be wrong, it might be indifferent, but uh, what I see now, you know, with the WWE is I see a total... Um, commercial product that has been uh, created by Vince and his writers, and uh, these guys are told exactly what to say. They have a script. You know, everything is scripted. Uh, their matches are scripted. Their matches, the, the timing in their matches and, and what they do, even though they do 
so many good things in the ring, but they really don't mean anything because there's no consequence. I mean, you see all these suplexes and all these high-flying deals and, you know, one, two, and the guy kicks out, and you know. And these guys are gifted. They do a lot of good stuff in the ring, but it doesn't mean anything because they do them so um, regularly and, uh, it, it, you know, there's no consequence. So consequently, you know, people are watching these things and it's one high spot after another, bing, 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 and, and there is no real uh, uh, pitted interest with the, the audience in terms of any uh, contest. And, uh, you know, when I was involved in, in all the guys of that era, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and, and you had, you know, such great workers like the Briscoes and the Funks and, and, and Rick Flair and, and Ricky Steamboat and Bob Orton Jr. and Dickie Slater. I mean, there was guys all over that were just incredible to work with. And, uh, I mean, the things... I remember having a match with Nick Bockwinkle, who was one of the greatest champions uh, in the AWA and probably one of the the top workers, I would say top five workers of modern-day history in wrestling. Uh, I remember doing our Broadway with him in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1975, which is a long time ago, 40 years ago. And I remember him besting me for about 20 minutes. And finally, after 20 minutes of the 60-minute match, I outsmarted him and uh, broke his uh, hold and got a hold of my own. And the people went nuts just over, you know, uh, me reversing that. And and the, the fortune was, for me, in the dominant position. And and you just don't see that now because there is no story told in the ring. It's uh, it's one series of high spot after high spot for action, which these guys are very skilled. They do incredible, you know, stuff in the ring. But um, I just don't see um, the timing. And uh, this has come, you know, and, and you know they. People probably say, well, you know, Brunzel, you're an old fart, you know. You're... But when, uh, in my era, I used to sit and watch some of these matches after I got done wrestling, and they were incredible because I knew what was going on in the ring, but the, these guys were masters. At, at, and, you know, they were uh, artists uh, of the first degree, in what they were doing in the ring, and it was just magnificent. And people would say, holy Christ, you know, and uh, you'd watch a match, and you'd say, God, that was a great match. Now, oh, yeah. you know, you, you don't know if it's a great match because they got what, what happens is the guy comes in, he's got a microphone, and the other guy comes in, he's got a microphone, and they look at each other for 10 minutes in a stare, and then they, they have a one-two, one guy goes out of the ring, they get back in the ring, and then, Next thing you know, two other people are jumping in the ring and, and somebody gets disqualified or somebody gets, you know, uh, and it's just, it, it's so systematic and it happens so often that um, 
<laughs> it's hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, I've seen uh, and heard, you know, many, many interviews from people, you know, like Steve Austin, who's like a, and, and, sure. uh, who's like a generation ahead of you. Uh, and, yeah. and Jake Roberts is around, you, you know, your area, oh, area too. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, they, they, to those two wrestlers that they really originated two moves: the DDT and, and the Stone Cold Stunner, and yeah. those were their moves. Those were their yeah. patent moves, and and you know the 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 match built around the, that big spot, you know, and especially sure. with. With with both moves, with you know the the, the build yeah. and psychology behind the match, and then boom, you know they hit the spot, the DDT, boom, the Stone Cold Stunner, the place goes bananas. But yep. you know both of them have made very good points that you know both of those moves are just regular run of the mill moves now, especially the DDT. I mean, there's so exactly. many variations and different types of DDTs now that the potency that it has now compared to 30 years ago is non-existent. And, and you know, John Cena's doing the, the springboard stunner. You know, this, the, it's like you have to build around the psychology and the writing around matches, and you know this very well, that it, it has to be a story. It has to be, You have to capture the, 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 the audience, and, mm-hmm. and you have to – it's basically it, – it's, it's like a blank canvas, and you're writing a story – in front of the in, in front of the eyes of the audience, and, you, and, and there there's ebbs and flows, and people there's oohs and ahs, and people are into it and engaged, and you and the right. the climax of it is the finisher. I remember you, yeah. you know, you you popularized the drop kick. You know, I mean, people, you know, you were you were going over people with a drop kick, and and well, that was the that was the move. You know, I mean, that was the move that people built up to. Nowadays, so well, many moves know, are so many, so so you know, so frequent. Yeah, you know, I I, I was very blessed because I had a good vertical uh, you know, leap, and mm-hmm. I remember when I went first down to Charlotte, and George Scott, who was a Canadian, he was a booker down there. In Charlotte, he really, you know, he got Charlotte going with Flair and, and Roddy Piper and and, and, and Jimmy Snuka and uh, Blackjack Mulligan. And I mean, they had that thing just on fire down there. But mm-hmm. I come down there, and uh, and this is in 1979. I'll never forget the very first match I had was in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It was about 90 miles away from Charlotte, and I was working with my old buddy Rene Goulet who was, you know, from Montreal, and he had worked in, in Minneapolis as a babyface, and he was a heel down there. So George says to me, he says, uh, I want you to use your drop kick, but he says, I want you to hit uh, uh, Rennie with six of them and then cover him. I said, what? <laughs> he says, I want you to hit him with six drop kicks. I said, George. I said, are you sure? I said, why don't I just hit him with one and, and stun him and have him kick out on three? And he said, no, I want you to hit him with six. And I was so pissed off because that's just like somebody taking a forty-five caliber gun and shooting somebody in the head. And then when they go down, you shoot them five more times. You know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense. And and I remember that night, and I was hyped up and ready, and, and we had a good match, so I hit Renee with the first one. 
him right in the forehead. Second one was in the chin. Third one was in uh, just underneath the neck. Fourth, by the time I hit him with the sixth one, I gave him a, a, res, a wrestler's equivalent uh, to, <laughs> you know, having a, a vasectomy. Because the, the sixth one, I was down about his waist. And I, mm-hmm. and I remember after that, I thought, what a stupid finish. And and uh, George Guy and actually I know that eventually we were going to talk about the fact that I wrote this book called Mad Labs and I and I self published it at the end of June and and it's been a five and a half year uh, little journey with me and and I had all these stories and people used to uh, I talk about them at different parties and everything and. And somebody used to say, why don't you write a book about that? And I said, well, uh, so my wife got me this little dictaphone, Chris, and I would talk into the dictaphone and talk about all these different stories. So uh, after about five and a half years, in the last two years, I had these stories down. I had uh, almost 50 stories that were pretty good. And I wrote them and rewrote them and rewrote them and finally got a manuscript together, and my wife typed it together. And I've been very blessed because I've I've had so many people send me all these doggone photographs. So I had roughly uh, three to 5,000 photographs to look at and wow. to put into this little book. And, and we did, and the book has just been... Uh, just it, it's really done well. I'm really happy in there. I, and I remember when I talked to a number of guys. You know, a lot of wrestlers write books and they have ghostwriters and they talk. They tell them and the ghostwriter writes. You know, whatever. Well, I, I didn't do. That. I wrote every word by myself. And uh, I, I remember uh, telling these stories to people and they, and they couldn't believe them. So. Uh, right now, I, I, I've had a couple book signings, and and it's only available on online. Um, I self-published it. I tried to get it published uh, with a regular publisher, but you know they they want like twenty grand, <laughs> wow. and then they don't guarantee anything. So uh, there's this little company online. It's called Blurb, B L U R B. Yeah, so my my wife had done a couple of these uh, books uh, for friends of hers, uh, one for a wedding and one for her mother's uh, 90th birthday. So she said, well, let's try it with Blurb. So we did it with Blurb, and then we found out that the book that we wanted to do, uh, we had to redo, and it's called a trade book. So... Mary had to re- <laughs> retype all the stories and and reformat all the pictures. So, uh, at the end of June, we had this thing uh, published, and uh, I probably sold I don't know I probably about 500 books now, and um, it, it's done real well. It's there's no axe to grind. Uh, all, all the stories are true. Uh, it encompasses you know from. Uh, actually, when I was in high school, all the way, you know, to the end, and uh, what I'm doing now, and it, 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 I, I had a book signing in a, a local uh, steakhouse in St. Paul just Sunday, and I sold 37 books, but 
it was really fun because uh, these, you know, old wrestling fans that were, you know, really hip to wrestling in the 70s and 80s would, you know, come by and they said, geez, Jim, uh, you know, we want to see this book. And then the people that have bought the book have said, you know, what uh, what great memories it brings back. So I've been real fortunate and, and uh, uh, we're... Uh, you know, we're doing a, a little by little, uh, you know, it's sort of a one-man PR deal by me trying to promote this book. But, uh, you know, I've done a couple radio shows like yourself. And, and uh, actually, I did one with uh, Kevin Kiley, um, Cleveland. And he's on some, uh, I think at the AM station, in uh, pretty, uh, we did it in the morning. And it was live, and it was about two and a half minutes. But it was fun. And, you know, I always had a good time in Cleveland. And I remember I wanted to ask them. I know I was on a rock and roll uh, station, and I wanted to ask them if there, if Kid Leo was still alive. I know he was a huge, uh, you know, DJ uh, in Cleveland in the 70s. And I just wondered mm-hmm. if he was alive. And I know he was... Uh, 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 a huge fan of Bruce Springsteen, uh, which I am. Uh, and uh, I actually have a, a story in the book about uh, my um, my admiration for Bruce. And over the course of the years, uh, you know, over 40 years, I had the opportunity to meet him and, and be with him after uh, many of the shows. So uh, there's probably five or six pictures of uh, Bruce and my family and and me and and that was another big thrill. That was probably the biggest thrill of my wrestling career was to be able to say that you know I met uh, uh, you know my idol, a guy that if I could have been anybody in the world, I would have liked to be a, a guy like Bruce Springsteen that could go out there and be a master guitar player and singer and songwriter and entertain people for three hours at a night and do it for 45 years. I mean, you don't get any bigger than that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually uh, currently learning how to play the guitar. I took guitar lessons a few years. I am. I took took, uh, guitar guitar lessons a few years back and didn't stay with it. Uh, I, I... from a financial standpoint, it was getting kind of pricey. I wasn't satisfied with the progress that I was making. And uh, a buddy of mine from from my church, uh, he's uh, you know just offering his time, and he said that uh, he'll get me uh, he'll get me stage ready in in six months. So no um, look, <laughs> yeah, he, and he's really good too. Uh, he plays for my church and. Uh, uh, my okay. church is a big church, about uh, uh, about three thousand people, and uh, yeah, he he does a very good job, and uh, good guy, great guy, and uh, loves the Lord, and and uh, yeah, he's uh, just giving his time, you know, and and I'm just thankful for that, and I'm gonna take you know full advantage of it, and uh, oh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm ready, yeah, I'm ready for. Well, it. I tried a couple times, Chris. I tried really? to learn a couple times. And and I remember I was eight or nine years old, and, I, and my dad was a career Navy man. He was a pilot in the Navy. And I remember seeing Elvis Presley on TV on Ed Sullivan, and I jumped up and I went to my dad, and I said, I want to be just like him. I said, I want to be a rock and roll guitar player. So about two weeks later, my dad took me to the music store, and he got me a damn accordion. So... 
uh, needless to say, after about three or four weeks playing this accordion, I quit and I devoted all my time to uh, and energies <laughs> to, you know, being an athlete. But I, I still, I, I have friends that play guitar and, and uh, you know, I, I just marvel at some of these guitarists now, you know, that are just so brilliant. You know, uh, John Mayer is coming here and he was, you know, sort of noted as a singer, but he's a brilliant guitar player and mm. he's going to be here, I think, in a month. And uh, he's always fun to watch. Yeah. Well, a couple couple more questions for you. Um, sure. So, who was who was the the toughest person to work with uh, in the in the AWA? God, you know what? At the AWA, there wasn't really anybody that hard to work with because everybody liked. You know, everybody knew their position, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody worked to have a good match. So mm-hmm. I, I really can't say, I don't think there was anybody, you know, uh, I would say out of every place I've been to, and that's, you know, that's Kansas City and Atlanta and North Carolina and Minnesota and New York, the hardest guy to work with was uh, Jim Neidhart. Of the, really? Jim Neidhart? Yeah, of the Heart Foundation because uh-huh. he was so unorthodox in the ring. And uh, he, he he's very strong and uh, uh, very moody in the ring. So he was just hard to work with. You know, mm-hmm. and, he, and he was, you know, he was a bull. He was like five, nine and a half, 270. And he was strong as hell and you know, he was a hell of a shot putter in, in college. And um, he was just really hard to work with. <laughs> and, it, really? and it, 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 you know, Bret Hart was really uh, masterful. He, I used to love having single matches with him. But uh, it was funny because when uh, Brian Blair and I, you know, the Killer Bees would work against the Hearts, it was just, uh, it was like pulling teeth with Jimmy Neidhart because he, uh, you know, basically he, he wasn't as skilled as uh, Brett, so uh, it was a little harder to work with him. Mm. Out of uh, out of Vince McMahon, and, and I know that you worked uh, with Crockett and Mid-Atlantic, uh, and you sure. also worked uh, with... Um, uh, in the in the early '90s, uh, you worked in WCW with Turner. So who who was in charge at that time? Was it Heard? Was it uh, 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 or was it uh, Watts? You know what? I I only did a couple shots for WCW, and I uh, I I, uh, I don't know if Watts was in there or not, but um, I know. Uh, that there was a lot of turmoil down there and the fact that there was, you know, the bookers, there was a, a couple different bookers that were trying to, to get the edge. And, then, uh, uh, you know, Flair was, he had, he had so many different guys trying, you know, to, <laughs> to shine down there. Uh, it just, you know, at once, at, at, for the, the very beginning, I thought, God, it's going to be great. 
because there's going to be a little competition to, you know, Vince. But then I think uh, some of the guys sort of took advantage of the opportunity they had there. And, and, you know, you were talking about guaranteed contracts. A lot of guys got this big money, and then, you know, all of a sudden they had a, you know, sore foot, and they didn't work for a week. So, you know, that was sort of the demise of that. And then... um, trying to think of the guy's name who started in Minneapolis and went down to WCW and then he wound up in the uh, WWF. God dang, I can't think of his name now. But uh, he was sort of, uh, he was a commentator. God damn, I can't think of his name. But uh, Um, he sort of rose the same. Was it? Um, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't Bischoff. Uh, um, was it? Um, what's uh, Ken um, Resnick? No, nope, not Kenny Resnick. Um, okay. Shoot, this guy. And then he got into the karate, and he, he fashioned himself as a karate guy. And he, he wore these black outfits. Uh, God, I can't think of his name now. God got it. But he, he sort of screwed Greg Gagne when he was down at the WCW. Uh, shoot. Um, you know, I'll probably think of it when I'm at three o'clock in the morning. I'll wake up and I'll say, I'll have to call Chris and tell him who that damn yeah. guy was. But I can't think yeah, of him now. Well, no. Isn't that funny? But yeah. uh, he was a character and he sort of, and he made a lot of money too, honestly, guy. And um, I want to say he was good friends with Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, God. oh, okay. So, okay, um, you're not talking about uh, you're not talking about um, okay, you're not talking about Ernest Miller. Oh, was it Tanaka? Nope. Pat Tanaka? No, no, no. This guy was more on the um, promoting side. Okay. And, uh, oh shit! You know what? If I think of him in the in the next day, I'll call you back and leave a message. Okay, but I great. Can't think, I, <laughs> yeah. And and I know uh, he started in the AWA and then he he went to WCW, made a lot of money in their turn, and then Vince took him on for a little bit. And I just can't, and Greg Gagne can't stand him now because he screwed Greg over down in uh, WCW. Jeez, uh, and I know geez. he's got a big house and he's got a big house in Vail, Colorado, and he's got one in Montana. And uh, oh gosh. Isn't that something? Well, I know as soon as I get done talking to you, I'll I'll think yeah. of his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me know because I'll I'll say it on the show. Uh, I'll say okay. it on the show, the next next show. So, one more question. So, you you, you were talking about um, uh, uh, Dick Murdoch and you know being, being a Southerner having you know some 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 racist remarks. Now, uh, big story going out with uh, coming out with with Hogan. Yep. So. Did you ever recall similar kind of verbiage or just lingo like that with Hogan? Or no. was it just, you know, was he just a nice guy? I've known Terry since 1982, and he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. And I'm sure that that was said out of frustration over his daughter uh, not complying to his wishes. And uh, I believe that Vince McMahon took an opportunity to get rid of uh, a lifetime guaranteed contract that he had with Hulk. And I I, I wish Hulk 
would right off the bat apologize right away. You know, last week, you know, he finally comes on and apologizes. Well, shit, that's too long. You can't wait, you know, three months or two months and say, you know, you got to jump right on that and, and say, hey, I uh, I said something that I shouldn't have said. You know, everybody screws up and I apologize. But I've known him for since 1982. It's at 33 years. And I, he is, he's never said anything racist uh, mm, that's good to know. about anybody to me or uh, to anybody I know. And he, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he got... I mean, when when things were really rolling, I mean, we had S.D. Jones and we had uh, Junkyard Dog and, uh, you know, we, everybody Coco. got along and, and Hulk got along with everybody, mm-hmm. you know. That's too bad. That's I feel good. bad for him because, you know, he's, he's he's gone through a lot of bad karma here in the last 10 years, you know, with the son getting in the accident and then having yeah. a divorce and, and uh, you know things like that. And it, it, it's it's too bad because uh, he was the golden goose, and uh, uh, he was the major part of creating the WWF, which is now the WWE. And Vince McMahon couldn't have done it without him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally agree with that. It's just, yeah. you know, it's just tragic to 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 hear that. You know, as far as <clears throat> what he said. You know, yeah. it's 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 tough for me as an African American. It's it's tough for me to really, you know. And it's good hearing that from you. You know, the, mm-hmm. someone who's known him for thirty plus years. It's, it's good for it's it's good for me to hear that. You know, but to use that type of verbiage, you know, I know that yeah. you know Brick was dating a, a black guy at the time. You know, and he was really going through some stuff, but just you know, <clears throat> there's there's absolutely no excuse to you know to be using that word at all. And it just, I, agree. I mean, just like yeah. just like you said, I mean, just to, you know, he needs to apologize immediately. And I know that he yeah. I looked at the interview. I think it was like Good Morning America. I saw the interview, and just it just seemed like just a, a PR episode. Like it was it was hard yeah. for me to really to really yeah. to believe what he was saying. Not not saying that what he's saying was was not genuine, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it seems like he you know he had a, a really awful PR team, you know, to put something together. Right. You know, saying that it was he was raised that way. You know, and that was the lingo that he used when he was a kid. You know, and and, and when he grew up, that was just a bunch of hogwash to me. It's still unacceptable, and I just wish that he would just, you know, come from the heart and you know just fire the PR guys. Don't have anybody write you know what he has to say. If it's yeah. genuine, say it from the heart. Apologize, mean it, and don't make it look scripted. I mean that—that's—that's that's my, you know, that—that—that's—that's that's my desire as a, as a life as a, a black guy and a lifelong, you know, Hogan fan. You know, growing up in the '80s and having the red and yellow. You know, that's what I want to see from 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 Hogan, and, and I haven't yeah. seen it yet, unfortunately. Well, you know, I he doesn't take phone calls anymore, and uh, he won't return phone calls. And uh, I noticed in the, you know in the last oh, probably ten to fifteen years, his 
flow of our uh, sphere of influence has changed in that he's sort of uh, drifted away from, you know, friends in in the wrestling business to to more people that are, you know, millionaires and billionaires in, in mm. big business. And, and consequently, you know, he tries to run with them. And I remember after this happened, I, I texted him and I said, even this will pass, big man. I said, I, I don't believe it. And I said, uh, you know, uh, don't worry. I said, you know, and, and I'll say this, uh, Hulk is a religious guy. He's always been uh, a Christian in, in terms of uh, the way I saw him. And um, you know, in in the in the world of professional wrestling, it's very hard uh, because there is a lot of things that go on. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with a business that basically is built on greed and deceit, um, it's hard to maintain. You know. Sort of a, a a real good Christian attitude because you're dealing with <laughs> you're dealing with these promoters who don't care a damn thing about you. All they want to do is fill the seats and make the money, you know. And uh, the more they can deceive people and the more they can become more wealthy, the more happy they are. So uh, you know we're all sort of like puppets in their hands, and and that's. Uh, the approach that you know I I saw as being a pro wrestler for you know the 25 years I was in dealing with the different promoters, yeah. and you know that that was their goal to to make as much money as they possibly could, you know, and 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 not give away you know too much of that money to the talent, so. That's what yeah. you were dealing uh, dealing with on a 24-hour basis. So it became a very uh, um, defensive uh, sort of position uh, that you held against promotion because you never know. You never know if you could trust them. You know, the the more um, you try to be honest with them, they'd use that as a weakness against you. So you know, I was very fortunate. I had a great career. I, I I don't uh, uh, regret anything. I think if I regret anything, Chris, is that I, I should have retired, you know, probably uh, five years sooner. But, you know, it's pretty hard. You, you devote your life to that. And there's no <clears> – pro wrestling does not prepare you for anything in the real world because everything is sort of spoon-fed. And, uh, you know, when you go into the real world and they say, well, what have you done the last 20 years? And you say, well, I worked out at many gyms and I've been to many, uh, uh, you know, I've been to Madison Square Garden and Boston Garden and, and L.A. Coliseum and <laughs> Kiel Auditorium. And I've been, on, you know, a million miles on different airlines uh you know, what else do you want? I've been, you know, I've been on TV throughout the world. And, and then, you know, it's funny because I, I remember flying with many, many uh, businessmen. And I remember I, I had 50 cards that I'd saved up over the course of about 10 years 
And all these businessmen said to me when, you know, I'd fly with them and we'd talk, and uh, they gave me their card, and they said, now, Jim, when you're done with wrestling, you know, give me a call. So when I was approaching being done, and I was almost 50 years old, <laughs> I wrote to all these guys, and not one of them returned my call or letter except one guy, and he said, Jim, sorry, we're not hiring now. So the old adage is, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Once you're done with TV, you know, you sort of lost your uh, uh, popularity and uh, <laughs> uh, demand. So, you know, people don't want you. So, you know, and that, and that's sort of a, a fact of life no matter what we do. Uh, so that was uh, uh, a consequence that everybody has to, you know, everybody who, who had a, a long career in pro wrestling, there's very few guys, Chris, that could, you know, walk away and retire. I mean, yeah. you know, everybody had to work. I mean, you know, uh, Ricky Steamboat and, uh, well, Flair, uh, you know, he's, he'll, he'll be in the business until he, he tips over. Yeah. And uh, the rest of the guys, all, you know, Bobby Orton Jr. selling cars and Greg Gagne selling cars and I'm, I'm selling janitorial supplies. And uh, everybody I know, you know, has to continue to work. And and, and, and that, that's probably one of the, the worst things about wrestling in that real golden era of the 70s and 80s and early 90s was you had nothing. I mean, uh, you were an independent contractor. You had no benefits. You had no insurance policy. You had no retirement. I mean, it was, you know, you you had to uh, save what money you could and put it away. And I remember I had an insurance policy. I paid $1,000 a month for my family, and that would not cover me for anything that happened in the rain. So... Wow. You know, and then uh, after you know five thousand matches, I've had a I've had a, a knee replacement, a shoulder replacement, and hip replacement. I'm 66 years old now. Um, you know, it it's a little harder to move around. I still work out, but um, you know, <laughs> I, I I think oh geez, you know, uh, you know, you hurt a lot more than you did, and you know, when you're young, you don't realize you know, what you're doing to your body on yeah. a nightly basis, and, and none of us did. And, you know, there's a lot of guys, you know, my age or, or a little older or a little younger, and and uh, it's it's a sad fact that so many of them are, are having, uh, uh, not only structurally are they deteriorated, but uh, mentally, you know, there's been a huge uh, amount of dementia and ALS Alzheimer's. So, you know, if you if you were to think that you would fall on your back and hit your head every day, you know, for 20 years, and that was just, you know, one time, not counting how many times you did it in the ring, you know, and uh, it just it it takes a toll, and and I'm just uh, hoping uh, and praying that, you know, I don't have the dementia. So. But that, you know, we all have to face that, and uh, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, if, if you abuse your body like we did, you know, and, uh, you know, 200 times a year or 300 times a year or whatever it was, 
um, you know, you're, it's going to take physical toll. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, you left some indelible memories to me as a kid. I remember the killer bees, and, and I had a fantastic, uh, you know, childhood. Uh, I remember those drop kicks. So it's been a pleasure. I, I certainly appreciated such an amazing trip down memory lane with you, uh, and, I, and I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us tonight. Well, Chris, thanks very much for uh, having me on. I, I, I took about a 20-minute nap before I called, so I, you know, I, I, I sounded uh, somewhat uh, lucid and coherent. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Thank Jim. And, and, and uh, you know, contact me again, you know, when you find out the name, and I'll, and I'll say I it will. on the, the following show. <laughs> thanks okay. a lot, and have a good night, Jim. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You are now listening to the Pancakes and Power Slam Show by Crave Wrestling on Blog Talk Radio. Be sure to follow Crave Wrestling on Twitter at Crave Wrestling and join the Facebook fan page, Crave Wrestling. Such rich history lessons, 40 years, you know, down memory lane from... Jumping Jim, well, 50 years, he talked about when he played in the football in the 60s. Awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, big Big Ten fan, that's awesome as well. And, uh, yes, yeah, such such great historical, rich history trip down memory lane with, with Jumping Jim Brazil of the Killer Bees and the High Flyers. Awesome time, Derek. You know, the thing about it, what I love about the interviews we have here on Pancakes and Power Slams is, they are so sincere. They really want to be here. You can just tell it. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's, there's been a few interviews we've had in the past where you can kind of tell, hey, yeah, everything was fine, but, but, you know. But then there's the ones like we've had tonight, like we've had in previous weeks, where they just really delve into the history and just what they had to offer, their experiences. I mean, it's it's like a campfire story. You just sit around and just listen. You don't really have exactly. anything to say. You just, <laughs> exactly. You want to hear everything they have to say. Tonight was one of those nights, and we've had so many of those nights on Pancakes and Power Slams. Just, I mean, this, the magnitude of people that we get on this show. I mean, it's we've got so much more to give as well. And, I mean, and the audience keep coming in. We've had record people just coming in just telling us, this is great. We love what we do here, Pancakes and Power Slams, and the, yeah. the people we bring on love it just as much. And so, I mean, keep up the great work. Keep up the support. We love it. We love it. I mean, again, another another home run tonight. I mean, how many more of these are we going to have? We can't be this lucky, but we are, because this is Pancakes <laughs> and Power Slams. Absolutely. The hottest show on the planet, Tuesday nights. Uh, awesome stuff. Uh, special shout-out again to Rico Constantino last week. Um, <laughs> man, talk about uh, <laughs> talk about uh, turning some heads around the pro wrestling world last week. Excuse me. Um yeah, it, we we get uh, tens of thousands of uh, listeners throughout the week, um, and and you know many 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 um, live and and then iTunes subscriptions and just throughout many outlets throughout the throughout the country, and 
yeah, out of all of that, Rico, the, the controversy that Rico brought with uh, shooting on Bo, uh, Bully Ray or Boa Ray Dudley uh, actually garnered us the, the uh, highest listen uh, out of all the interviews that we had uh, throughout uh, this year, some, some really, really good interviews that had a lot of, lot of listens, um, uh, over 100,000 listens. Uh, this one was uh, the highest, most controversial one uh, and, and garnered the highest numbers of the year. So um, it, awesome stuff. Uh, thank you, Rico, for your um for your honesty and uh, letting us know about uh, the backstage life of, of professional wrestling. And I just love hearing that stuff. I just love hearing just, you know, how people, the the, the reality of pro wrestling and just the backstage, you know, um, uh, going, uh, going on and hearing it from Jim Brunzel tonight and just, you know, someone with such, you know, such a, a story career, being a world champion in, in Mid Atlantic and, and tag team champion in AWA, uh, just awesome stuff. So let's skim through uh, Raw and then we'll get to uh, uh, Prodigies real quick, and then we'll get to the the the, the predictions. And Prodigies, what I mean is we'll uh, just randomly just pop out, uh, just pop out. We we did the top ten managers last last week, and just we'll just randomly pop out. A person or a team uh, that was the biggest uh, success coming from that manager. So that that'll be fun. And, and of course, we got predictions for Night of Champions coming on this Sunday. Uh, the funny, the funniest part of Raw was definitely the opener. Uh, New Day. You know, I've said many things about New Day as far as you know me liking them since day one. Uh, the Authority opens up. Uh, make some announcements, you know, uh, with the with the tagline of, you know, history, history, history. So it was very intriguing to see, to to, to know that Sting was competing on Raw, but I, I think it was one of those things that I also shook my head because, again, I I don't want Sting to lose that element of mystique, and and he's doing it very very much, and it's just making me feel so sad inside, <clears throat> but. It was it was quickly atoned by just the uh, off the script. I'd imagine it was off the script, but Stephanie she tends to go off the script a few times. Uh, she has an inner club uh, girl in her because she's done it with Cena before. She's done it with she's done it a few times with Cena, and just uh, she did it with uh, Vicky Guerrero before. She she just has this. Uh, this I, I call her club. I call it club Steph. She just uh, starts dancing, and it was hilarious. When the new day, she was quick to do it, and then Triple H reluctantly did it, and uh, came back, and, and it was absolutely hilarious. It was it was funny. So Xavier was with the trombone was just absolutely hilarious. And I've said this, you know, before. You know, it, New Day is one of your biggest money makers in the entire WWE. So. Go with it. Go far with it. Have have Xavier play the trombone and and, and make him Intercontinental Champion. Feud against Ryback. Have uh, the have uh, Kofi and Big E. You know, be uh, tag team champions. You know, just go far with it. Uh, then we get uh, uh, Paige and Becky. Uh, Paige losing to Sasha Banks. Tapping out. I don't, I don't know why. 
they're doing that. Looks like they're quickly fading out P, uh, PCB, which we'll talk. We'll, I mean, we'll talk next week about the Divas Revolution. We got another interview coming up in two weeks, but we'll talk next week about uh, Divas Revolution as well. Uh, then we get uh, Miss TV with the Wyatt family. Miss says Hell in a Cell, which was really funny, uh, and then. Uh, Roman and, and and Dean comes out. Uh, they said they have a, a third guy, which I'll, I'll get your thought on that uh, in a in a moment, Derek. I think it's Kane. That would be interesting to see uh, who the who the, uh, the the third guy is. Uh, and then we just saw different uh, commemorative things about Sting. Uh, Starcade, Great American Bash, um, and then for some reason they started. Uh, well, they started the Starcade '88 and '97, Great American Bash '90. But for some reason they 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 did last week. They showed last week because that's a memorable moment. That was weird. Cena uh, beating Sheamus clean. Um, maybe an omen to a, a cash in. That. That moment in the ring with Ryback and Owens, uh, it, it was it was tough to watch before Owens came out because you know Ryback is starting to I'm starting to lose interest in steam in Ryback for sure because I mean you, you're giving him a live mic as if that's going to help people like him. Uh, Stardust and Extension versus Neville and Lucha Dragons is to a no contest, which uh, they will be competing against each other at uh, Night of Champions at the kickoff. The screwy finish with Paige and Nikki was just ridiculous to me. I was just not a fan of that at all. Um, Rusev losing to Cesaro clean may may be a sign of what's going to happen on uh night of champions but for some reason Cesaro's not a part of it which is weird. Show and Sting Sting looked amazing in the ring. I was I mean he looks great, his physique is great. Changes it to a tag match which saw Sting cause Seth Rollins to tap out. So what are your biggest takeaways from that? Uh, my, uh, from the end, uh, it was it was tough for me to endorse seeing Sting uh, make Seth Rollins tap out because we'll get to uh, predictions in a moment. But I'm really hoping that that doesn't. Usually, when stuff like that happens, the 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 people the per the person loses, you know, and uh, it. We'll get to, we'll get to predictions in a moment, but it was hard for me to see Sting tap out uh, Sting uh, Seth Rollins tapping out the Sting just because he just made defeat Sting because of that. Yeah, hey, I was just thinking the same thing. You took words right out of my mouth, Chris. You, whoever loses on Raw ends up winning the pay per view. I do not want to see this happen. This. Give Sting the title for at least a month until maybe yeah. even you know, Survivor Series or something. You can't. They're going to totally blow this like they did the invasion angle. You can't. It makes me so mad. And I saw that with the Sting going back, or not the Sting going back, but anyway, the flashbacks of previous matches. Why are you building him up to be this huge thing that everybody knows that he is just yeah. to have him lose at the pay-per-view? It makes you're doing 
what the authority wants. Let's erase Sting from the record books, and you're you're nothing, Sting, because you can't hang with the WWE. He can hang. I'm, for crying out loud, I'm not a Sting guy. You know that, but I know who Sting is. I know Sting. If you give him the title, that is what you need. That's what Sting's need. He deserves it. Yes. Why would you do this to him? That is so. But. Sting loses to Seth Rollins. It makes Sting look null and void, unbelievable. Yep. Who really cares? That's exactly what I get last night. Exactly. Very well said. It it, it does. It makes him because he because he lost he, he lost to Triple H. So if he if Triple H would have put him over, losing to Seth Rollins would have had more impact to it. But he didn't, and it just it's just making it even worse. I just. We'll see. Now let's 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 real real quick. Let's get with uh, the flavor of the week, and then we'll, we'll we'll get to predictions. So we said Slick was number ten. Who do you think the biggest prodigy that came from from Slick? The biggest prodigy would almost have to be, I think, probably Boss Man and uh, Akeem. That's the most that I really remember from Slick. Um, other than just Slick being Slick, but I mean, he had a possible connection. He had a big. He had a big run with him. I agree. I agree. I would say the uh I would say uh the Twin Towers as well. Definitely uh the biggest from uh, Slick. Captain Lou Albano. Captain Lou Albano, he was uh, he was rock and wrestling. So I mean his whole feud with Cindy Lopper and uh just being a part of that. I mean he he was the manager for the Wild Samoans, I remember at the time, but uh his hand in that with the rock and wrestling, being on the cartoons and everything, just that's what I know Captain Lou from, and probably everyone else in wrestling. Yeah, technically he was a manager of Hulk Hogan during that time. Uh, we're coming out with him with him and uh, and Cindy Lauper, so I would say that. But he wasn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't like he wasn't like really one of his guys, but. Um, you know, Wild Samoans, uh, I think that's a, a pretty good one from uh, um, from there. Um, Bulldog, I, w- I would say Bulldogs. I would say the British Bulldogs would be the, the, the biggest prodigies coming from uh, uh, Captain Lou Albano. Jim Cornette in the WWE. Jim Cornette, obviously, I love the uh, Owen Hart and British Bulldog together. I mean, he had his stint with the new Midnight Express and things like that. Yeah. But- even with Yokozuna, of course. I mean, Jim Cornette was a huge success between you know, Yokozuna. So, mm-hmm. I, I'm a Cornette guy. I love Jim Cornette. But with the WWE, definitely, probably just Bulldog and Owen. Yeah, I would say that too. I would say I would say Owen, Bulldog and Owen, and also Owen and Yoko. I think that was uh, pretty good. We'll do uh, we'll do two more real quick, and we'll do the the other five next week. Uh, real quick, sensational Sherry. I, I I would definitely say Shawn Michaels with with Sherry. Shawn Michaels was great. For me, Macho Man was like the biggest when she was Queen Sherry. So that's mm. pretty much yeah, that's my take. One. Yeah, that's, that's that's a good one. I think I think Randy Savage was definitely you know established enough. But I think. When it when it talk when it, when it comes to prodigy though, just you know, just a young up and comer, um, she really helped just really cement the hill career of Michaels. But I definitely think um, bring you know mentioning Savage is great. And then and then finally for this week, Mister Fuji. 
Oh, Mr. Fuji. It was, uh, for me, mostly demolition. I remember him most for that, and even the uh, Colossal Connection. Well, it, but that was WrestleMania six when they went together, and uh, Andre the Giant turned his back on Fuji. So, But most of the part, yeah, demolition and Colossal Connection. I would say, from a prodigy standpoint, I would say, my Yokozuna. I definitely think uh, Yokozuna, you know, he led him to become, you know, world champion. And uh, just, I had no clue who Yokozuna was, but I knew who Mr. Fuji was. So it was Mr. Fuji's, you know, uh, uh, popularity who allowed him to, uh, who allowed Yokozuna to get the push that he did. Uh, but, of course, demolition, you know, and and the Colossal Connection as well. But, uh, but you know, Colossal Connection was, was also, you know, a Heenan thing, too. So, um <clears throat> Well, it's mostly a Heenan thing, uh, but yeah, Yokozuna was uh, definitely the prodigy for me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to the predictions. Um, we unfortunately saw Nikki Bella uh, become the longest Divas champion. Does she lose it against Charlotte on Sunday? I, uh, I think she does. I mean, might as well. So you have another year to have a Divas crown. So I think Charlotte's going to pull it out. Uh, I think so too. I think Charlotte's going to win. Does Ryback retain the uh, Intercontinental Championship against Kevin Owens? Uh, yes, he does, and it's going to stay that way. I agree. I think Ryback is going over Owens too. Random match: Ziggler Rusev. Who you got with that one? Uh, who cares? Probably uh, Rusev. I'll go with that. Yeah, unfortunately, this is a bathroom break match for me. Uh, Rusev is uh, is going to go. Uh, do New Day does New Day retain the titles against the Dudley Boys? I want to say yes, but I don't know. That one's really up in the air. I want to say New Day does. I think so too. I think the Dudleys is uh, here. They're doing their final run, but um, I, you know, you have to put the New Day over. They're, they're, they're the hottest team going on right now for sure. Uh, six man match. Who? Is the who who real real quick who who's who's the third guy and who wins? A third guy is Kane, and uh, I believe they will probably win this one. I agree uh, on both on both. Uh, real quick, uh, kickoff match: Neville and Lucha Dragons against Cosmic Wasteland. Who you got? I got the Cosmic Wave. I do as well. Seth Rollins pulls a double duty. Sting and Cena. Does he beat? Any of them, and who, or does he lose both? He's going to win Cena and lose to Sting. Unfortunately, I got him beating both of them. I don't see a cash-in um, happening uh, for some reason. So, Awesome time uh, today. I hope I'm wrong. I hope Sting wins, but I, I think he'll be both of them. All right, ladies and gentlemen, 181 in the books. Jim Brunzel next week. Uh, we'll talk about Night of Champions Aftermath. Until then, have a great week. Enjoy your week of wrestling. God bless. Goodbye. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.